1: There's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape.
0: Good evening, listeners.
1: Good evening, listeners. You are tuned to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis, and this episode was recorded on May 11th, 2020. I'm Daniel Watkins, and this is Inspiration Dissemination. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you are a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in being on our show, or if you want to learn more about the exciting work done by graduate students at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. You can find links to our Twitter and Facebook pages there too, and you can find past shows on Apple Podcasts. Tonight's show is recorded remotely on Monday, May 11th. Since I'm recording at home, you might be lucky enough to hear a toddler sweetly complaining about not getting enough attention in the background. It's the new normal, what are you going to do? As per usual, opinions expressed on the show are our own and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight we're joined by Cedric Hagen from the College of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences. Cedric is a PhD candidate working with Dr. Jessica Kreveling, and tonight we'll be talking to Cedric about his work in numerical geoscience. Welcome to the show,
0: Cedric. Thank you for having me.
1: So your work deals with a period in time that is hard to imagine how long ago it is. Um, I'm talking about the juncture between the Cambrian and the Aptly named Pre Cambrian. (laughs) Um, So the names of these geological eras kind of blend together for me because I don't deal with them very often. And so could you start by just giving us an idea of what and when the Cambrian era is?
0: Yeah, so the, the Cambrian era is the very first bit of what's called the Phanerozoic. It begins at 541 million years ago. And it is when geologists typically define the earth going into a state that is more like today than the pre-cambrian in that most of the forms of life have appeared on earth or rather they appear on earth in the early cambrian
1: okay so this isn't the dawn of life on earth this is just when it starts to look sort of like what we're used to as in we've got So stop me when I say one that isn't there at that time, (laughs) but we start to have vertebrate life maybe,
0: or what, what do you mean? Can you, yeah, not, not, not necessarily vertebrates as you might think of them, but we start to see things like mollusks Uh and um, trilobites is a common one that people um, typically know. And a lot of these other types of skeletal organisms that are really, really small, but they are related to all the different forms of life that we see on our planet all around us today.
1: Okay, okay. Um, Yeah, I feel like I'm frequently surprised at how recent things are that seem really common, like flowers. Right. So there are numerous things that make these kind of deep time or super long ago kind of eras hard to study. Uh, What are some of the main challenges that you have to deal with in
0: your work? Yeah, so one, I'd say probably the, the primary challenge for geologists working in this time period is lack of age control. And by that, I mean that we don't have a lot of ways to tell time in the rocks. So to know if we are in the Cambrian period or if we're in the pre-Cambrian or if we're in the, the later Cambrian or even the, the Ordovician period that comes immediately after the Cambrian, you typically need to have some type of of material that you can date radiometrically or geochronologically. And there tends to not be a lot of material during this interval for for scientists to date. So for that reason, it can be really hard to um, necessarily be able to compare dates, or not dates rather, but compare data from different parts of the world and to really put together a a full story.
1: Right. So one of the things that I hadn't really thought about before with this is, you know, talk about the age of the seafloor. Like a lot of the early kinds of life were marine life, as I understand it. Uh, And typically when we're thinking about marine fossils, we're looking at either shells and things like that that have been pushed up onto a continent or we're thinking about like a core into the seafloor where they're looking at little microscopic shells from different kinds of plankton. But the problem is that the seafloor gets recycled. So I'm trying to remember exactly what the cutoff is. If, if I remember right, you can't go much further than like 280 million years with seafloor and that's only in a couple teeny spots on the earth's surface.
0: Right, exactly. Just a few small pockets go back that deep
1: so in essence you could have a piece of rock be pushed by the tectonic action all the way from the seafloor spreading zone across the ocean be subsumed and then do that again (laughs) and then you're far enough ago to be in the cambrian era
0: yeah Yep. exactly
1: wild uh so where do you
0: go to find things that are that old what we end up having to do is to go to regions of the world that have preserved these shelf environments, but are now modern day cliffs and uh, bluffs, scrags, et cetera, that have no more affinity towards the ocean. You would have no idea that they used to be an ocean today um, or in the past rather based on what they look like today. But in in reality, that's what they used to be. And because of the tectonic forces at play and the millions of years, hundreds of millions of years that the system has had to evolve and change, um, these small areas of the world can preserve these really old rocks.
1: So you mentioned trying to figure out the age of rocks. And I think that something a lot of people are familiar with is the idea of carbon dating, which is used for like seeing how old bones from somebody living in the stone age are or things that are within the last 10,000 or is they cut off 14,000 20,000 it's not very many thousands compared to what we're talking about
0: right yeah so typically the rule of thumb is that you don't want to go back more than than uh, 10 half-lives and the half-life of radiocarbon is about 5,700 years so you're t- looking at a maximum age of about sixty thousand years that you can do with radiocarbon, typically.
1: So, in order to turn to get the age of a crystal or uh, some aspect of the rock that's older than that, you have to turn to other elements and different kinds of crystals. Like, what are some of the tools that are available for like things that are more than a hundred million years old?
0: Typically, when you're looking at really old rocks, um, the one of the main geochronologic systems the main ways that we date rocks is to use what's called uranium lead decay so much like how radiocarbon can decay to nitrogen in its stable form you can also have radioactive uranium that decays into lead but the difference between these two systems or one one of the many differences between these two systems is that the half-life, the rate at which uranium decays to lead, is much much lower than the half-life of radiocarbon. So, this allows us to essentially track the decay of uranium over much longer periods of time because as I said before, we're limited by the half-lives. Once you've had once you've accumulated about 10 half-lives worth of time, there's not enough material, radioactive material left over to detect. So, you need to have these really slow half-lives in order to accumulate enough time to measure the things that we're talking about.
1: And the things that you're measuring are already fairly small, right? Like yeah. I've, I've seen pictures where it's a magnification and then there's a little speck and say, here's the chunk of zircon that we're checking right. the age of. Yeah, So I can imagine like if you cut something in half too many times, there's, there might be an <laughs> atom or two, but good luck finding it.
0: Yeah, exactly
1: what are some of the questions that I'll put it this way what are some of the questions that you could become famous for answering <laughs> in the area that you're looking at
0: most people when they think of the cambrian if they've heard of it at all they'll think of what's called the the cambrian explosion or the explosion of life or however you want to put it and First, the, the Cambrian explosion is not the, the dawn of life. Like, like you said earlier, it's not the first time that life appears on Earth in any means. But it is when much of the diversity of life on Earth first enters the stage and we see a rapid diversification in the Earth's oceans. So understanding the, the tempo, the pace, the timing of this diversification is really important for understanding how and why life evolved, where it evolved, what what conditions precipitated uh, the evolution of life in some areas versus others. And this can even end up stemming to the search for life elsewhere. If we wanna know where to look for life, we first need to understand what, what made it possible for life to evolve and diversify so rapidly on earth
1: in terms of the rapidity or the explosiveness of this diversification i guess just to get a point of reference over how many years are we thinking that like the diversity say got twice as much or 10 times as much like what's what's the jump in diversification and how long are we talking
0: yeah the the jump in diversification is it's many fold it's hard to necessarily say how many fold just because it can be difficult to identify the organisms and when you're comparing some organisms from some parts of the world to others it it can get tricky but it's a very large increase in the amount of diversity and the the time frames that we're talking about here are around millions of years which sounds like a really long time uh, for you know everyday life but in terms of the geological record and the rate at which evolution moves Huge changes in diversification on the order of a few million years up to maybe 10 million years is extremely rapid and really uh, significant within the the record of evolution.
1: So, in order to make a timeline of how life appeared, you need to be able to tell relative times for each fossil. Like you found this fossil in central Australia that looks like it's from 450 million years ago, and then another fossil of a similar type that might be related to it in North America from maybe 500 million years ago. Right. But you need to know, like, you need to be able to put a date on both. And uh, what, are, what are some of the things that go into um, trying to rank the arrival times of these different creatures.
0: Yeah, yeah, what, what you're getting at is a, a kind of a fundamental question when it comes to what's called biostratigraphy or the, the ordering of the appearance of different organisms in the stratigraphic record, or really the, just the geological record is how you can think of it. Um, so first, before we talk about multiple different sites, if you just think about one location that you're at, say just in Australia, If we're just talking about the relative timing of things, one of the most um, fundamental principles of stratigraphy tells us that things that are deposited lower in the stratigraphic column, or if you imagine a cliff in front of you, things that are at the base of the cliff are going to be older than things that are at the top of the cliff, those will be younger. And that's just because if you imagined essentially sand grains settling over time, building up this big cliff that you're looking at now, over time, it accumulates, right? So the, the youngest periods of time are towards the top, whereas the older periods of time are at the bottom. Something on top had to have been deposited on something that was already there. So in terms of relative timing, that's one of our constraints. However, it gets a lot more complicated when we start looking at multiple places in the world. So with your example, like with North America and Australia, you need to have some way to tie these records together. Otherwise, you don't know if the top of North America is at the bottom of Australia or somewhere in the middle or something else. So what we typically need to do is find some way to establish age control. That can be with radiometric dates like we were talking about. And in some periods of time, that can work really well. There's plenty of material to date and you can more or less align records by just having enough radiometric dates. However, like I mentioned, there's not a lot of material to date during the early Cambrian, so we're stuck with other methods. Typically, what people end up using are geochemical time series, so measurements of certain isotopes or element compositions or something of that nature that change through time, and you would measure them (laughs) Uh, for example, from the bottom of the cliff all the way up to the top of the cliff, developing a, an evolution of that metric through time. And you do this in both localities. And then as long as whatever you're measuring is recording what should theoretically be an ocean value, a value that represents everything all throughout the ocean, then it should be relatively straightforward with just matching up peaks and troughs of those curves, assuming that you're recording the same signal.
1: Okay, so just to try to pull some of that together and make sure I'm understanding it right, imagine that we're looking at something that's next to a slope and one that's further out into a plane. So it might be the same kind of Dust in the area, but next to the slope, you have stuff falling down and piling up, so it's getting buried quickly. Whereas further out into the field, the same dust is being blown there and accumulating slowly. And over time, like the kind of dust might change. And so you could say you have lots of type one at this time and lots of type two later, but um, it's going to be really thick in one area and thin in the other. It's like the same pattern, but different
0: thickness. Yeah, exactly. So you, you measure the same values, but they can end up appearing different because essentially your, your time series gets stretched or squeezed in different ways because of the thickness of these various packages like you were describing. So if Australia, for example, has a really high sedimentation rate, meaning you'll have a really thick section, you'll have a record that's really stretched out. Whereas back in North America, maybe you have a very low sedimentation rate. So your geochemical time series will be really compressed. So then that is where the difficulty comes in trying to match these records up. If you have numerous peaks and troughs through your geochemical time series, and one record is compressed and another is expanded, how do you know which peak goes where? Or, you know, in reality, it gets more complicated where some parts of the section are expanded and others are compressed. So you have to be able to find some way to still know which peaks are which, essentially.
1: Right, because you could have like a river come through and erode part of it, so you could just be missing a chunk in the record.
0: Yeah, sure, absolutely.
1: So something I thought was pretty cool with, the, with your project is that you're bringing a lot of computational methods in. There's a particular algorithm that has an interesting origin. But do you want to speak to that?
0: Yeah, sure. So the the technique that that we've decided to use to try to address this problem is called dynamic time warping. And what it allows one to do is to take one time series and to stretch and squeeze different parts of it relative to its original state in order to best fit a second time series. So as you might imagine, with what we've just been describing with the, the variable nature of thicknesses of sedimentary packages and the history that dictates what these stratigraphic records look like in different areas, this can be a really uh, useful tool for these records. And this tool has actually been used in many, many different fields throughout the sciences and throughout, uh, throughout the world in the last 30 or so years, well actually quite longer than that, but definitely in the last 30 years. Um, it's it, it's some of the underpinning of how voice recognition software works. It's been used to detect various uh, conditions and, and heartbeat time series records. Um, it's used to figure out for logistics companies to know how to most efficiently ship packages across the country. There are many interesting uses, so it's it's cool to be able to take such a, uh, kind of general algorithm and apply it to a, a geologic problem. It must help
1: also to have different user groups trying to get the same thing to work so that you can error check each other in a sense. Yeah. So that, you know, if something is like, if something is broken, it may have broken in the same way for someone else.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's some, some concepts that we adapt from some of the early work on speech recognition in our stratigraphic correlation, which is, it's really interesting just to think about parallels between those two very different fields.
1: I feel like you could make an analogy and say that you're trying to recognize the voice of different places. <laughs> <laughs> I've looked through a couple papers that you've written recently, and congrats by the way, having papers come out before you've been done with your PhD.
0: <laughs> Thank you.
1: Uh, so you're able to use some of these same methods in a couple very different areas. You have the, um, you have the work trying to uh, analyze these um, Cambrian and Precambrian records, but you also have done some stuff with uh, the magnetic striping. Is that right?
0: Yeah. So similar to the, the, the same questions that we've been talking about here, of being able to match stratigraphic records that, don't have great age control all the time, or that are just complex to correlate to each other for one reason or another, can be applied to many different times in earth history. And one of those that we've looked at a little bit is the quaternary. And so I spent some time uh, in the last year or so with a former OSU graduate student um, who's now doing a postdoc down at Scripps. And with his work, we adapted the same dynamic time warping algorithm that we're using for geochemical time series back in the Precambrian to work with paleomagnetic data for the quaternary. There's some, some differences in the algorithm that we need to work out so that it can manage these very different kinds of data sets, but it works in the same fundamental ways. And we found that it can produce similar results, which has been really exciting.
1: In both of these cases it's not just about trying to match up a record with another record. It's about trying to find a, the, how many different ways it can line up. say, so like here's a solution that you can see with your eyes but here's some other places that it could line up too.
0: Yeah absolutely. So for a long time, when people have correlated different stratigraphic sections to one another, people tend to do this visually, and they end up with a single solution that they think works best based on how the peaks and troughs look and making some assumptions about the, the sediment history of that region and, um, and so forth. However, what we kind of hypothesized is that If you have really poor age control, there could actually be multiple different ways that you align two or more data sets together. And that this may have some pretty important implications for, say, when different organisms first appeared in the early Cambrian, or how you might correlate two different paleomagnetic records together. Um, So one nice thing about the algorithm that we've been using is that it allows us to explore many of these different possibilities. And what we've been doing is assembling what we refer to as libraries of alignments, all of which could have, um, all of which have different implications for things like biostratigraphy or the ages of different, of different sedimentary packages. But um, are still all possible within the confines of the geological constraints that we have.
1: So, I think one of the important things that you bring up in the paper is the idea that with this algorithm, you're able to create a library of possibilities, like you mentioned, um, but that it's not intended to replace an, a human expert who's able to bring in knowledge from a lot of different things where a computer can only bring in the knowledge that you tell it to look for. Um, And so it's designed to help a geological expert identify other possibilities that can match, which they can then go through and rule out based on things that a computer wouldn't know to look for.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. So one, one thing we don't want is for people to start blindly entering in data into this algorithm, getting results and making conclusions about it without thinking about, the, the actual geology, the, the stratigraphic evidence that's there, and it's really important that you still have an expert in that geology and someone who really understands these processes to know what the implications for the stratigraphy mean, if they're realistic, if there are some constraints that can rule some possibilities out, and so forth. So really, the, the alignment tool, the algorithm, is meant to work in tandem, work together with the experts,
1: taking a slightly different direction here. If you were to just jump back six years and give yourself an update, uh, how, how would you have reacted knowing that, you, to hear that you're now on a path to become one of these experts in geological
0: records? Well, I don't, I don't know if I'd go that far, but on my way, hopefully. on the path. <laughs> like, yeah you can dream I dream big you don't
1: have to say that you're <laughs> a perfect expert right now
0: right yeah no i think I think I'd be happy to happy to hear that things have have gone relatively smoothly and that the the algorithm has worked how we hypothesized it might, and we have a lot lot more ideas for ways to go in the future, so I'm looking forward to it
1: cool and how did you actually find out about this area of research?
0: yeah so I guess to to kind of take two steps back I as an un, an undergrad I started research pretty early on I was actually first interested in astrophysics and I did research in that for a couple different a couple years I worked on a couple different projects um I worked on looking at uh different parameters that one can constrain from dwarf galaxies using the Hubble Space Telescope and then another project I worked on was looking at um, cyclicity in b- basically different types of of radiation of output from sun like stars elsewhere in the universe, and the implications for that for habitability of planets that may be orbiting those systems so I was really interested in that research, but sometimes I would get really bothered by the fact that th- there 's these fundamental concepts in in astronomy that you know what you 're looking at is is so old because of how light works in a vacuum, right? So say a, a star you're looking at is 40 million light years away or something like that, you, that star probably doesn't exist anymore or it's at least existing in a very different state than it, is, than, than it was or than it is when you're looking at it on the screen, if that makes any sense. Like you're, you're seeing a snapshot that represents... the. The history, much like the geological record, represents a snapshot of what the past Earth used to look like. So I liked those aspects of it. But what bothered me was that I couldn't really take it a step further. There wasn't any tangible, physical things that we could measure. We were really limited in our tool set. So still interested in some of these same questions about, you know, large changes over times and space Um, I turned more towards geology, and I'm still interested in finding ways to combine these two interests, but since then, I've mainly been interested in understanding Earth history.
1: I was just just thinking, I saw a a picture picture recently recently that combines combines a little bit bit of of this this. that was pointing out that in these past eras, the solar system was in a totally different part of the galaxy. Mm. We'll say part of the galaxy, but the galaxy was facing a different direction. Sure, yeah. And so just this idea that when we're looking at things that happened very long ago, uh, the situation it has changed a lot in the meantime. And that includes both like stars being born and disappearing and also like our position in the galaxy changing. Right. Um, I can relate in part to the idea of wanting to find something more concrete as well because I started out doing mathematics. Um, so I did a degree in applied mathematics. And I wanted more excuses to like go outside and point to things. And I can also definitely say that I get it, it is easier to carry on a um conversation with a non scientist when they say, Oh, you study like the atmosphere and clouds in the <laughs> Arctic, then we talk about the convergence of algorithms and Hilbert spaces. Sure, yeah. Um, I'm wondering. Which whether you get more interest from non-scientists when you talk about astrophysics, or when you talk about ancient geological history? Because both of those tend to be like really um, exciting topics for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, yeah, they they both tend to be you know these kind of quote-unquote sexy scientific fields, right? The right, yeah. the things that get tons of press coverage and whatnot. And I, I think in my experience, people really like the sound of astrophysics. But then if you actually start talking about the project or what you do or what you study, they get kind of bored pretty quickly. It's not all like, you know, spaceships and Star Trek and Star Wars. It's pretty different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Differences uh,
1: in the frequency of a pulsar.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, I, you know, I think that there's... There, you do see a similar thing with geology, but I think that people... Get less bored, less fast, if that makes sense. Um, Sure. You know, people still kind of assume that you study dinosaurs and you're a paleontologist and you're like Jack Horner out in Montana or something like that. But um, So how many T-Rexes have you dug up? Right, exactly. But I think that it's a little bit easier for people to imagine, you know, an ancient Earth with you know, a different ocean with different organisms than it is for people to imagine like, you know, a solar system with two stars and 10 planets that look completely different. And, you know, one of them getting obliterated by a supernova I I don't know. I just think that some of these concepts are just a little bit more, they, they strike home, strike closer to home for a lot of people. So we have a tradition on our show,
1: uh, where we try to collect some wisdom from our guests. <laughs> uh, so I I asked you to come up with a piece of advice and um, an audience for that advice. So first of all, uh, who are you going to be speaking to?
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I'll just be speaking to, I don't know, young people. <laughs> okay. And I, 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 I think it's really cliche, but... Maybe it's not, maybe I've just heard it a number of times, but I heard a lot growing up from different relatives that one of your biggest goals in life should be to find something you really love to do and then find a way to get paid to do that. So I guess as simple as that is, that's my advice is to not, not focus so much on the money, not focus so much on the place, just focus on doing something you love and finding a way to... Make your life work around that.
1: How do you think that uh, passion or like, however that should be defined, should play into this idea of finding something that you love that you can get paid to do?
0: Yeah, I, you know, I think it's just that if if you find a way to 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 monetize your hobbies or your interests, then you're just going to end up being a much happier person, and I think that the real, the, the goal in life that people tend to forget until it's too late is that you want to be happy, you want to enjoy your life. It's not always just this rat race. And I think that a lot of people, especially in the United States, forget that.
1: Cool. Thank you. Uh, so maybe not so much on the monetization part, but on the enjoyment part. Um, what is a song that you recommend that we listen to? <laughs> you
0: know, an artist I like a lot is hosier and uh his his latest song is called jack boot jump and i enjoy that one a lot anything that we should be listening for in the song or just sit back and enjoy it oh i guess i would just say enjoy it it's it's uh kind of a politically charged song but it enjoy it the most you can <laughs> yeah uh, thanks
1: thanks again for coming on to the show it was really great to have you here yeah thanks for having
0: me. I- it's obviously you know it's it's a pretty trying time so thank you for still doing this
1: Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Haman. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible.